I'm excited. It's a privilege to start this new sermon series in the second letter to the Corinthians. Uh, we're going to read the scripture passage. I'll read it for us. The first 10 verses starting at chapter 1. Let's give our full attention to it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, this church at Corinth presented the most problems for the Apostle Paul. We can read at least two letters written to this church in Holy Scriptures. I will submit to you there were more visits and more letters than the ones we can read. It was quite a memorable response when we went through 1 Corinthians as a sermon series, CCSC, as as soon as we became a church, and that was all the way back in 2010, 2010. But this year, repeatedly, several elders and myself at a retreat independently chose passages from 2 Corinthians to share as devotionals. Several staff independently chose different passages of 2 Corinthians to share as devotionals during our Tuesday staff meeting. And evidently, instead of just me coming around to finally choose 2 Corinthians, it seems like it has chosen us. And I can't even begin to tell you just in the past two months at least in studying and meditating how much I have sensed the Spirit of God speaking to me, sensing his movement, and how perfectly relevant the Word of God is by his Spirit for CCSE in this season. You know, as we launch this new series, I got five, five Ps. I'm going to go fairly quickly. Trust me, five Ps. First are the parallels, the parallels between the city or the region of Corinth to California. Second, the problems. The third, purpose. Fourth, paradox. Fifth, we're going to get practical. All right, just five Ps. First are the parallels, the parallels. Apostle Paul spent a year and a half in the city of Corinth, preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
miracle of miracles. There were people who believed and repented. And there were conversions that happened. So much so, Paul was able to plant a church. And that fledgling church flourished. Flourished with gifts, with growth. It became pretty well known at first. But sure enough, soon enough, way too soon enough, it started to fall apart. Complete disaster after disaster, even for the apostle Paul. Namely because of the surrounding culture of Corinth and the Corinthian newborn Christians regressing back to their old ways. Again, the parallels between Corinth and even California. Well, it was situated in prime location. Prime, prime location. It was a coastal city. Uh, So it attracted many business travelers, dreamers, those looking for opportunity, those who were young and diverse, Greek, Roman, and Jewish. Corinth, again, was a gateway to so much promise and potential. And as a young and open city, not tied down by old traditions or pedigree, the only new currency that counted for people to earn respect and advancement in the ancient city of Corinth was to have visible health, wealth, and success. Visible glitz and glamour. Does any of this sound familiar? By 50 AD, Corinth had become the third most important city in the Roman Empire, behind that of Alexandria and Rome. Prime coastal location. It was also known to be a mecca for entertainment and sports. Next to the Olympic Games, Corinth held the Isthmian Games. It was filled with all kinds of noise and activities and distractions. Oh, also, if you went to the city looking for religious offerings or you wanted to get high off of religion, ancient commentators report that if you came upon the city, there was a monumental skyline temple dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite. Along with the temple came a thousand temple prostitutes. Prime location, a mecca for entertainment and sports, religious offerings galore. Corinth also became infamous. There was a word that was made up in ancient culture. It was a verb to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize. Well, that actually meant a synonym for sin. For sin. To Corinthianize became actually the act or the verb for sinning. Now again, does any of this strike any similarities? Uh, The Red Hot Chili Peppers had a very popular song where they took the name of our state, California, and just combined it with fornication. And I know that became quite a pop song. One of the preachers or commentators on these two letters by the name of Ray Stedman, because of so many parallels, so many striking similarities, he says, let's not any longer call it first and second Corinthians, we should just call it first and second Californians. First and second Californians. I don't know many other New Testament letters that would speak so directly and specifically and relevantly for Californian culture. Those are the parallels. Now let's get to some of the problems. Just some, just some. Again, the first church plant started off, oh, so well. 
And we pray and we celebrate the flourishing of kindred Presbyterian church. We pray it just continues. But we all know that is not the nature of life and relationships in ministry, truth be told. What started off so well, even for the Apostle Paul, this was his church, his church plan. He taught it. He prayed for her. Almost everything seems to fall apart by the occasion of these letters. Some of the problems included in the first letter to the Corinthians were such stubborn and hostile divisions among the church that even rose to lawsuits, Christian people taking other Christian people to court. There was a kind of immorality within that church so shocking and offensive that it was intolerable for pagans. Apostle Paul writing to them says, this is something that your pagan neighbors wouldn't even accept. People in the Corinthian church were showing up drunk. No, not drunk just at the club or the bar. They were showing up drunk at communion, which we do at the end of each month. At the Lord's table, they were drunk. And at the Lord's table, they were practicing discrimination and exclusion based on no good reasons. There was rampant heresy. People tended to over-spiritualize thing, things, not be with the body or with the physical uh, nature that God had made. And most of all, as Paul concludes the letter to the first Corinthians, just a lack of love. Cold, distant, impersonal, mechanical, not enough love to go around. Now, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians here, the problems which occurred in 1 Corinthians, these problems became a lot more personal. The occasion upon which Paul has to write a second letter to the Corinthians, at least we can read about it in all the scriptures, is that he has to address problem after problem after problem, which got too personal. And mind you, these problems, accusations, suspicions, questions arose from the very people that Apostle Paul had spiritually fathered, had loved on, pastored, and raised for years, even from a distance. Some of these accusations included, hey, hey, Paul, well, who made you king? Who made you the leader? How do we know that you really represent God and speak for God? See, this church at Corinth, there was nothing sacred, nothing off limits in terms of what they could accuse Apostle Paul with. When it came to his calling, when it came to his style, when it came to his effectiveness, or even his authenticity. Paul why aren't you just more captivating and impressive, entertaining and powerful like all these other famous speakers around here? Paul, Paul, you could afford to be a lot more business-minded, savvy and successful instead of just keep on suffering like you do. There was even an objection that was raised against Paul. Hey, Paul, you know when you fundraise and ask us to collect money are you really collecting it and distributing it to the poor? Wow. The Apostle Paul was presented a lot of problems. Now the most pressing immediate accusation or problem in the first two chapters is something just seemingly innocuous. It was a change of travel plans. 
Now you see, Paul evidently had promised to visit Corinth again soon, but he didn't. He delayed it. He changed it. And that gave way to character assassination from his enemies, led by one particular leader who publicly swayed the minority crowd while the majority stood silent, did not discipline the accuser in public, nor did they publicly defend Paul. But this opposition accused Paul in his changing of travel plans as, look, 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 here's a guy who says and promises one thing but does another. He's unreliable. He is someone you cannot trust. In fact, he's afraid. He's afraid to face us again. Everything we're saying about him is true. He's a coward. Now, given how hot, how like radioactive, intense all these feelings were that Paul knew about from reports, Paul purposefully chose to delay his visit back to Corinth. He changed his travel plans. And his real reason, contrary to all the accusations that were leveled his way, his real reason to change travel plans, along with a letter that he sent rather than showing up in person. He explains starting in verse 23 of chapter 1. We read here. Here's Paul. Now look at the length to which he has to explain himself. Because this is the apostle wanting to communicate clearly and with truth. Verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. <clears throat> Not that we lorded over your faith. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we work with you for your joy. For you to stand firm in your faith. Then starting over chapter 2. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul wasn't noncommittal. Paul didn't have commitment phobia. He wasn't indecisive. He wasn't fearful. No, but he was committed to their joy. Paul was committed in his abundant love for them. The real reason Paul didn't visit again right away was because he wisely determined to not cause further premature counterproductive pain in person. Oh, rather than cowardly, Paul was so caring. Rather than of inflicting more pain, Paul was sparing. In the meanwhile, we read, rather than visiting in person, I sent a letter Drowned in my tears. Gut-wrenching. Heartbreaking for me. But he sent the letter, which according to chapter 7 in this letter, worked. It brought about repentance in some. Now here is a person of the highest theological IQ. Oh, there's no one better who could quote scripture. Who knows doctrines inside out. 
who is of the highest intellect naturally and supernaturally. And yet at the same time, do you not find here, just in the opening first two chapters, someone so tender, patient, pastoral, with the highest EQ as well. You know, my friends, when there's a lot of problems and a lot of pain and a lot of mudsling and a lot of hurt that goes both ways, Paul was a kind of person who would discern the right time to even confront and address some of these issues. Paul was a type of person who was wise and so caring that if the other party was not yet ready, he would wait. He would wait instead of just bringing the harsh hammer down. Oh, the marvel of how Paul just even begins to deal with the change of travel plans. Toughest, yet so tender. Remarkable human being, let alone a pastor and apostle. And yet, truth be told, my friends, in this life, your best actions, your best intentions, almost blameless, sinless behavior, certainly I'm not saying I am, but for Apostle Paul he was, all of it can be misconstrued, interpreted in the worst possible light, and used against you by your enemies. It's no win situation if there's someone who only wants you to lose. Sometimes in life and in gospel ministry and leadership like Apostle Paul, no matter what you do, there's no win if the other side is determined you lose. Now, if you've tasted any of that, welcome to the ministry life of Paul. Welcome to the reality of the life of his master as well. Oh, just some of the problems here that Paul had to personally deal with. In addition, in addition to these personal character attacks, we read in chapter 1, verse 8. Here's what Paul wrote. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Oh. This is from someone with a track record of the highest pain tolerance. Oh, there's nobody, if you read his letters, would say, oh, this is just a whiner. This is someone who cries over spoiled things. This is just someone who tends to, you know, just complain. No, 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 no. His track record is of suffering after suffering after suffering. And something happened in Asia, which remains a mystery. I could not find a commentator who was conclusive about what happened for Paul to say we were utterly be burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Some of the possibilities range from near-death riots, such physical violence broke out. Other people say a life-threatening illness other people would conjecture that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh that acted up, acted out, that made his life almost unlivable. I will guess, I will lean toward that first answer, that most likely what happened in Asia, Asia for some reason, Asia, you know, go figure, Asians, you know, I don't know what happened here. 
but probably it was the most harrowing, severe, scariest persecution to date. Paul felt he was done. There was no tomorrow. He reached the end of himself. Death was certain. Parallels between Corinth and California. Some of the problems, last of which is Paul thought he would die. Let's get to the purpose. Is there a purpose to all these kinds of problems? Oh, we read it here in verses 9 through 11. This is a running theme throughout this second letter. Indeed, we felt that we'd receive the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Dear friends, dear worshipers of God this morning, like bitter medicine, can I ask you? When can you not help but pray. When are you driven to pray and it's almost like you can do nothing else but pray? Verse 11, which we did not read initially. When do you, are you so desperate, you ask for, maybe pray and beg for the prayers of many other people on your behalf? You know when that happens. It's when you have no more answers left. There's no more options left. You've exhausted all of medical science. You've exhausted all of your intelligence and strength. You've burned through so much money to get a cure. You've tried everything. Nothing works. And all you have left is the certainty of the sentence of death. Tomorrow is 9-11. Can you believe it? That occurred in 2001. 9-11, 2001. I vividly remember I was in our church office building near D.C. in Virginia. And New York pastors all reported back then how there was an unusual stream of New Yorkers coming to their churches in that season. How many more people were spiritually shocked and awakened and interested to come and seek something outside of themselves to not only make sense of it, but to get through it? The purpose, the purpose that we would not rely on ourselves, but rely on God. The purpose of our problems is that God will allow it to teach us not to rely on ourselves, but on God. Did you know this is the way Paul learned to pray too? I felt I was dead, and the only way I could pray is someone who would raise the dead. All right, a fourth P, the paradox. Paradox. Let me offer us a definition here. 
from the Oxford Dictionary, something seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. <laughs> That's a paradox. Something puzzling, something seemingly contradictory, even impossible to be held together, but when they come together, it's true? That's a paradox. Jesus often taught, you have heard it said. Jesus is saying, I know you believe this. I know this is common belief. I know this is the cultural dominant narrative. This is the conception that all of you carry today. I know it is said. I know you have heard. I know you believe this. Go look it up. And then Jesus goes on to say, but I tell you this. He was paradoxical. He was paradoxical. My friends this morning, I know it's a little hot in here, isn't it? It's getting a little hot, huh? Form of suffering for Californians. If you've ever wondered and cried days on end over this question, at the end of the day, God, really, why do I suffer? Why must you suffer? Why must you experience pain, sometimes increasingly so? Paul has an answer for you. He has an answer for me. Every single verse from verse 3 through 10 mentions comfort, affliction, pain, suffering, death, or a deadly peril. Paul's best answer, I believe, is summarized in verse 5. Here it is. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If you ever groan like me, why must I suffer? Why must I keep on suffering? Why do the sufferings even seem to get worse? Paul comes back and here's what he tells you. If you believe and belong to Jesus Christ... Jesus will make sure to make you like him. If anyone believes and belongs to Jesus Christ, Jesus will make sure you become like him. If Jesus loves you so, if you are so united to himself, his sufferings become yours, and so do his comforts. For anyone who is in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Well, the new is that the sufferings as well as the comforts of Christ now become a part of you. Here's a divine paradox. Here's the paradox that the Corinthian church just, they just couldn't comprehend they couldn't calculate they could not grasp but it's true it's true for all the problems for and against apostle paul for all the pains and the sufferings that apostle paul experienced it did not disprove one bit his calling his worth or his ministry but it demonstrated that indeed he has been sent or an apostle of jesus christ Counterintuitive, it's paradoxical, 
The audience was telling him, oh, if you're really of God, if you're really godly, if you're really blessed, you'd be more successful. You'd have less pain. You'd have less problems. People wouldn't be leaving you and opposing you. No, 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 no. The divine paradox, according to Apostle Paul, is this. No, all of those problems, all of those very things that you use against me are actually the things that authenticate me, the things that demonstrate that I indeed have been sent by Jesus Christ himself. For my friends, make no mistake. If Jesus Christ calls and sends you, you will suffer like him. No servant is greater than his master. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, how many people would say in my heart, oh yes, I love those songs. I love Jesus. I love him with all my heart. Well, if you love him, you will certainly look like him and feel like him how many people say, I follow Jesus Christ? Oh, absolutely, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm not just a casual, cultural, bystander believer. I'm a follower. I'm really active. Great, wonderful. Well, do you know that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that guarantees you're going to end up like Jesus Christ? That's the divine paradox. That in the midst of all the problems and pains, there are such comforts and joys that surpasses them all. There is a fake gospel, my friends. There's a pseudo gospel, my friends. It's a very American gospel. And it goes like this. If you believe and follow Jesus, all your pain and problems will just go away. Have you heard that? Do you actually still believe that? The pseudo-gospel promises and lies to your face. If you believe and follow Jesus, all your problems and pains will just disappear and go away. No. The real gospel tells you you will never experience and exhibit the life of Jesus more than by dying to your old life in the middle of problems and pain. The real gospel promises you, you will experience a new and resurrecting and never ending and overjoying life of Jesus Christ when you die to your old life because of problems and pain. That's the paradox. And it is a paradox, my friends, that is proven 100% true. I have never met or heard or read of anyone who resembles Jesus Christ who hasn't gone through this paradox. I have never been close to someone who reminds me of Jesus Christ who hasn't gone through his or her own death. You will never become like the one you love until you go through and handle the very problems and pains that God has purposed to allow so that you might not rely on yourselves, but on God. Oh, let's get practical now as we close. Okay, let's get practical. Verse one, chapter one. 
Paul addresses his audience in this way. He identifies himself. I'm an apostle sent by Christ Jesus by the will of God. Timothy, our brother, my partner. And then he first calls him a church. The church, the church of God that is at Corinth. Hey, what would you write to a group of people who has created nothing but problems and pain for you? He calls them church. Church means you're still the people called by God. Then he goes with all the saints who are in that whole region, the whole of Achaia. Saints, saints. That might be the last word I use for this crowd. But it's the word that Paul leads with. Look at verse 2 as we get practical. Verse 2. Now after he addresses them as church and saints, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is his first word. Paul paid first and foremost attention to the prior preeminent eternal work of God's grace in the midst of and more than present problems. Paul looked for and was more aware of God's evidences of grace in the midst of and even more than all the areas in need of growth. You know that old cartoon, Peanuts? Linus is curled up reading a book and Lucy is standing behind him with a funny look on her face and Lucy turns to Linus to say, it's very strange. It happens just by looking at you. Linus asks of Lucy, what happens? Lucy responds, I can feel a criticism coming on. I can feel a criticism coming on. Apart from the grace of God, that is all that you and I will ever feel coming on. This is not just a critical analytical thing you learned in college. It's not a cultural ethnic thing. It's not a biological thing. It's not just a genetic generational thing. It's not a personality thing. It's just a plain old natural sinful thing. When all you ever feel is just criticism coming on. Truth be told, last night I made the mistake of watching my alma mater college football. Certain college football games tempt you and test you. Oh, so badly. Anyhow, but all you will feel apart from the grace of God is a criticism coming on. Prideful people, competitive people, because you're insecure, you're looking at them. Pride comes with insecurity. Insecurity on steroids is what makes you so prideful. You have a really hard time identifying evidences of grace in other people because you're preoccupied with yourself and making yourself feel better or somehow superior or in control. Can I ask my dear husbands and wives in this room this morning? Is your spouse, or if you have children, are your children, your friends, people you work with, are they usually more aware? Do they get to pay more attention to grace or just the areas that they need to grow? This will profoundly affect every area of life and give life to everyone around you. 
You know, in high school, just I tried to shortcut it, read the cliff notes or just read the beginning and the end of every book and that'll give you some kind of gist of it. Well, it's no different in Second Corinthians. We read the beginning. Look at the bookends. Look at the conclusion. Chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. There's how it ends. Finally, brothers rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Truth be told, nothing rips up a pastor's heart more than this. Restoration, comfort, agree, live in peace, love on one another. Greet one another with the holy kiss. And here's how he concludes the entire book. Again, to the very people who created so many problems. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Grace was his first word, and grace was his final word. The first and final word of the Apostle Paul was grace. What's yours? What's yours this morning? What's your first and final word? If people were asked to describe you, what words would they use to describe you? Grace was his first and final word. And inasmuch as I so long and want to be more like Apostle Paul, and I've been floored for the past couple of months by his tears, his strength, his courage, his spirit, and all of his responses of grace to the very people who present problems. And I've been so floored by Paul. How did you do that? Why did you do that? How could you keep it up? And then quickly I realize Jesus Christ literally floored Paul. Jesus Christ was accused. He was misinterpreted in the worst possible ways. Jesus Christ was actually assassinated for doing nothing wrong so that he could give life to people who hate and do so much wrong. And when grace met the apostle Paul, when grace flooded and floored apostle Paul, it possessed him, it changed him, it made him into a new man. The grace of Jesus Christ changed the life of Paul. The grace of Jesus Christ changes all lives. If you want it. If you want him to. You just come just as you are. You come just as you are. Grace means God will be good to you when you deserve nothing good or you have been no good. Grace says you come just as you are. And when you come just as you are, grace will meet you there in Jesus Christ. And it will never, ever leave you just as you are. My friends, it doesn't take an expert to stand up here and say, oh, the world is full of problems and pain. 
oh, I feel so sorry for all of you and me because we go through so many problems and pain. You don't need to hear that. Who doesn't know that? But if grace is your first and final word, if grace is your first and final word in the middle of problems and pain, you are a living paradox. Much like Jesus and his gospel. Let's pray. Father in heaven, bring us to your son. Oh, bring us this morning. Just as we are, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that body was broken for me, you gave yourself to me when I deserved nothing to be given. And I pray, O oh Lord, that this grace would not only meet us, but change us here as we are. Change us even as we are today to reflect and look and act and respond much more like the one who gave his life so we might live. Oh, hear us, we pray. Hear us, we pray as we respond. Can I just give you a couple of moments for this final thought response? Let's pray together in response and then we'll sing.